Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast, recorded live at Autosport International, featuring Gary Anderson and Stuart Codling. Birmingham. Something a little bit different for you now, as some of you may know. Autosport does have a podcast out twice weekly for free, downloadable from your podcast supplier of choice. And so we're going to do a live recording now with a couple of our well-known names. My name is Ed Straw, I'm your host, and joining me first is someone you may have heard of, a designer of Grand Prix winning cars, Gary Anderson. Afternoon, everybody. Uh, Gary, I was, I was worried you weren't going to appear there for a minute. <laughs> and no my problem. second guest, we're giving him a bit of a break from hosting duties and allowing him to express some opinions, Stuart Codling. Oh, it's a little bit weird sitting on this chair for once. Right, you get to, this you, is my camera. And you get to be controversial. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to start off the controversy by all you lot on the Porsche stage, get your hands off my car, especially you lot with the 935. Don't leave any fingerprints on that. Yeah, you by the wheels. Stand up. You've got to polish that. I've always said you were paid too much, Stuart. <laughs> well, actually, he's my chauffeur. <laughs> well, let's get on to the, the matter at hand. Formula One 2019, new regulations, designed to make overtaking better. What do you think, Gary? Is it going to work? Um, I don't see why. I suppose the best way of putting it. I, um, 
you know, there's lots of changes and lots of expense for the teams to research it and wind tunnel time or whatever. But the end result, I don't, I don't understand why it will make a difference. Um, you know, we've gone to a wider front wing, uh, which is going to be more fragile. As I always say, the, the last thing a driver sees, the last time a driver sees the front wing is when he gets in the car. So to actually know what that is, um, is always very difficult when you're in close contact at the first corner. So I would see quite a few more get, being knocked off. Um, aerodynamically, they've, they've changed that to try and reduce this outwash of the, the airflow. Um, but in reality, with a narrower wing, you just have to have more aggressive turning vanes to get the air to go around the outside of the tire. And with a wider wing, you don't have to have the same aggression. So it's still going to happen. And then it tucks into the low pressure area behind the front tire and it gets picked up by the barge boards. Um, so everything's going to happen more or less the same as far as I'm concerned. Uh, when you've got these cars that are, you know, they're developing at the end of a straight 300 kilometers or something, they're developing like 2,000 kilograms of downforce. You know, a car that's got that little bit more downforce will always have an advantage. So the teams are going to push, 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 push to, to get more downforce out of the car. And then the, the following car is going to have the same problem. So... Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to see a difference. And of course, Stuart, these are kind of a sneak, a sneak preview of some of the concepts that will underlie the 2021 regulations, but they're going to be much, much more dramatically different. I guess we have to get our expectations in check. This is never meant to solve the problem, merely to mitigate or at least stabilise the problem and stop it from getting worse in the short term. Uh, very, very often in, in his excellent Ask Gary features, Gary talks about such things as being a bit of a sticking plaster solution, don't you, Gary? Um, I think it is interesting, and Pat Simmons came to the stage yesterday, and I tried to sort of pin him down on some of these issues, and, and, and I said, does this form an effective preview to the, the post-2020 regs? Is, is it going to be a learning experience? And, and he was um, not quite ready to commit to that, but what he did say, which I thought was very interesting, was that in all likelihood, if things had carried on as they were, then in 2019, there would have been a much bigger gap between the haves and have-nots because they'd have had an extra year of development. So he thought that actually, even, even if we don't see this miraculous improvement in the ability to follow closely and overtake, then we are mitigating a problem that we might otherwise see. And we, we talked about it in, in the context of the millennium bug, which was something that everyone got very scared of. There, a lot of time and effort was put in behind the scenes to make sure it didn't happen. And then when, when it didn't happen, because of all that work, people said, well, that was a load of money down the drain then, wasn't it? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Gary? Because the way these rules have been created, Formula One themselves under Pat Simmons' team have been doing this analysis since 2021. And then the way these rules for this year have been created is F1, tried, well, the FIA, tried to take some of the, the ideas to do some short-term changes. So it's an interesting thing. This, this mustn't be seen as a test of the 2021 regs as Stuart said, because it's, it's just some of the, the ideas underpinning it. Yeah, you could probably say it's a bit like doing your dirty washing in, in public. Um, you know, they're going to be judged on this. But I, again, I don't quite agree with Pat there as far as the, the haves and have-nots, because stability in the regulations is how the teams close up. You know, if, if you look at Sauber this year, for, or last year, for example, you know, they did a better job than most teams, really, as far as getting more out of their car. Um, and I think that would happen in general to the teams at the back. We know, we know McLaren and, and Williams suffered a lot in 2018, mainly because of mistakes they made. But in, in general, they shouldn't make those mistakes next year because the regulations would have been stable. But by changing them, even that percentage, even just the, the front wing, the barge boards, which are the, the complicated part, the rear wing itself doesn't really make much difference. 
um, you know, they, they're running that risk again of teams making a mistake, which will open it up. But if you didn't change the regulations, I'm positive that the, the back of the grid would be closer to the front uh, through stability. And that's always the way. When you change, it costs a lot of money and it opens up the grid for quite a long time. Yeah, Helmut Marko said it's cost 15 million euros to design the new front wings, which Pat also disputed. But you know, even if it's just a ballpark figure and isn't quite that much, that's still a lot of money that could have been spent elsewhere or not spent at all. Well, you know, just taking a front wing, for example, you know, the, go the guys go to the wind tunnel, use CFD, they come up with this new concept, and let's say it mean needs the whole front wing package to be changed. The tooling to make, to make that new front wing, even before you get a wing out of it, um, is probably in the region of 200,000 sterling. And then your front, your front wing's gonna cost you 100,000. So you've got 300,000 bill before you get the first one to the circuit. And when you go to the circuit, it doesn't work as planned. So you have to start again. And because the regulations have changed, you know, every day you're learning something new about it. But at some point in time, you've got to make one. And then after that, you make number two. Probably a team like Red Bull, you know, a top team, Mercedes, they'll have four or five different iterations of wing as the season goes by. But they'll probably have two or three before the, the first race even. So, you know, that, that's a million, a million used up to begin with. It would be interesting if you could put a price on, for instance, the amount Ferrari invested in stuff they ended up having to take off the car, the, the new floor in, uh, in Singapore, the front wing, the barge boards, the rear wing that they put on after that, and then they took it all off again and went faster in the last three Grand Prix. Uh, well, that, that's always the interesting thing. I mean, the, the, what's happened with the FIA, they've reduced the use of wind tunnel time and CFD time, and it's all very clever stuff because you know, that big fan that's running in the wind tunnel is very expensive. But it means that you don't have time to do all the wind tunnel running you'd like to do before you release the, the, the component to be made for the circuit. And that's very, very expensive. Releasing a new underfloor again, you know, it's a massive amount of tooling. The component itself, you can't go to a race meeting with one of them. You need to, you know, you have two or three. Um, so by, by reducing wind tunnel time means there is more, more stuff, as I call it, ends up in the back of the skip, in the back of the paddock. Um, at the end of a race meeting. And it's not because it's crash damage, it's just because it didn't work on the circuit. You need to have more wind tunnel time, you need to have more research time. And really, to, in my book, I would be trying to police how many times you could introduce new stuff during the season. You take all this stuff around the car, front wings, rear wings, underfloors, and you say, okay, you know, you can have three or four or five of these per season. It's up to you to introduce them when you do. But when you introduce a new one, it, can, it has to be used you can't just go back to the old one. This is a new development you're putting on the car. So you're trying to limit the amount that can be taken to the circuit. Well, let's play devil's advocate, Gary. If you were running Jordan in the glory days, a rule change would surely be seen as an opportunity for you. And just for Formula One fans in general, there's the optimism that a disruptive change in regulations is not the biggest one we've seen, but still there's the potential. It could upset the apple cart, could change the competitive order. Some teams are going to do better than others, and we could see some unexpected results early in the season in particular as a result of it. Yes, I, you know, I believe as a, as a small team, you always look at it as a challenge. And I think it's, you know, a big team's like an oil tanker. You're trying to steer it. You've got so many people. You're trying to steer it in the right path. A small team can change direction pretty quickly. So in the short term, I think as a small team, you see it as an opportunity. If you get everything right, then there's a very good chance you'll, you'll do a good job. But if you get everything right, the big teams will just overpower you. So by the time you get to the European race, you know, what, fifth race of the season in Barcelona or something, they're going to, have, you know, they're going to be on top of you again. So, yes, you can get a, bit of, a few points at the beginning of the year, but, it, but it's cost you a huge amount of money. And some of these smaller teams are the ones that are struggling. You know, Ferrari, McLaren, 
Williams, um, you know, they all get some money out of, uh, out of the FOM, above the prize money, but it's the small guys that are making the racing that don't, so they have to live from day to day. Is there an argument, Gary, for going through with your idea of, of limiting the number of introductions you make during a season and actually make that part of the dramatic tapestry of a Formula One season so in the same way that the transfer window operates in football and it's part of the theatre so you would have set races where, where the teams can introduce development steps and that becomes something that is, is worked towards the, all, all the media organisations can build anticipation towards it and it becomes a thing yeah, you could do it. <clears throat> you could do it fairly publicly. I mean, you say, okay, let's let's for example say you're allowed a new front wing four times a year, and before the season starts, you have to allocate what race you're going to bring that new front wing to. So the team could have to say, okay, I'm going to bring a new front wing to Monaco. I'm going to bring a new front wing to Silverstone. It's up to the team then to get that right, but then you know get the, the package correct for that release. But then the media can make a big thing out of it. Or you just say whatever you arrive with at a race meeting. For example, you arrive in Australia with this, this package of car, and uh, those designs, you can obviously replace it for, for accident damage, but you have to use the same design and concept of front wing, underfloor, and rear wing. And you have to do four or five races with it, with that design. And you have one you know, wild, wild um, herring you can throw in, whatever you call it, um, just to, if you were really in trouble, you still got that opportunity to, re to recover. There's many ways of doing it. And I think at the end of the day, the only way you'll stop this big spend, a huge, huge spend that of wastage, is to try and trim the amount of stuff you can actually take to the circuit. You could certainly have some dramatic moments. Rather than a car unveiling, you could have a front wing unveiling. You could have some star-studded ceremonies for this. This could make things quite interesting. But let's have a look at what we expect from the season in terms of the storylines. Stuart, it was Mercedes versus Ferrari. Last year, we're expecting it to be a similar thing this year with a wild card that is Red Bull Honda. But we have seen quite a big change at Ferrari with Maurizio Rivabene, the team principal, departing. Matteo Bonotto, the former technical chief, has switched over to be team principal. What do you think that might change? Uh, it's certainly going to change the mixture, isn't it? I, mean, I don't know whether the actual result will be any different because they seem to have uh, put someone who is calmer, more collected, someone who's, who's better at operating... Um, uh, a well-functioning organisation, shall we say, someone who's, who's not a, a blame culture operator. So you would think that that would make the team operations a little bit more slick. But then they've actually introduced an element of unpredictability by recruiting uh, the, the very young and talented Charles Leclerc. But um, I have to say, Gary, and you, you might back me up on this, uh, Ed did a very interesting uh, column for F1 Racing magazine, which will soon be... Um, Going, go, I think coming out next week, F1 Racing, where he points out that actually, if you if if you look at Charles Leclerc's qualifying performances over the past season, um, it was actually quite rare for him to string together his theoretical perfect lap, and that's something that Sebastian Vettel does very well. So, we we might not necessarily be looking at a situation where the young hotshot actually takes it to Seb Vettel because because Vettel might just have the you know, an advantage over him in qualifying because he's so good at doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we spoke about it a little bit earlier. I, I think that it's a difficult thing because obviously for Charles Leclerc, he's driving a Sauber. He's getting himself through Q2 as such into a, an area where he probably isn't quite as comfortable in Q3. He doesn't have the tyres left. He's got that one, one run on tyres probably just to, and he has to risk everything. Um, so he's done his job and he knows that if he qualifies really well, yes, he could be 6th or 7th or 8th. 
but he's probably going to be ninth or tenth in reality. Um, so he can he can afford to go out there and wring its neck and end up making those mistakes. Whereas Seb Vettel's in in a car and driving for that front row, um, which is totally different uh, discipline. And also he's got probably more tires left to experiment on. So I don't think Vettel's been without his mistakes. I think he might put his, his uh, perfect times together more often, but that comes with a bit of experience as well and the different discipline. I, I believe in Charles Leclerc. For me, the the other big change for Ferrari is the uh, the change in management, and then you know that that's going to be a bit of a drama to me. I don't I don't really see why you would take your best technical person who has come in. Um, what well, we're told because we obviously don't know we're not inside the team, but he's come in whenever they had engine problems back in 2014-15 and put the structure of people together to sort those problems and manage it. And then he's come into the chassis side um, and, and did exactly the same thing. And they've ended up this year probably, you know, it's tit for tat between Mercedes and Ferrari as far as ultimate performance of the car is concerned. So you take him and you put him into a technical and uh, a management political position, which is not his forte you know why would you want to do that because every time you change and in my time with the team you know working with the teams every time you change the structure and move people around a bit it takes them time to find their feet and, and he's going to, it's going to be exactly the same for him uh, Gary obviously you had a lot of success as a technical director as, as of, t- of a team but does that necessarily mean that you'd have been good as a team principal if Eddie Jordan had said to you in 1996 oh I fancy having a little bit of an early retirement, or I'm going to make you team principal. What, what would your response there have been? Uh, no. Uh, very, very quickly. I mean, at the end of the day, as I say, you, you, know, you have your expertise. You've got to enjoy getting up in the morning and going to work. And I don't think um, you know, part of the politics of, of being a team principal is to protect the team of people underneath you. And I think uh, Bonotto is, is somebody that's been very good at, at being a technical manager. And you've got to allow him to be a technical manager. And that is a full-time job seven days a week. It's not you know, a part-time thing where you can say, oh, I've got to go off to a, um, a technical uh, or a, a team principals meeting in, in London, so I'll see you tomorrow sometime, boys. That is going to dilute their technical effort for sure. And I think it's the wrong decision. And I, you know, I believe they should have brought somebody else in. As I said in one of my um, Ask Gary week things in, in Autosport, you know, the, it's about identifying what your problems are Ferrari had a fast car. They made some mistakes. They didn't get the best out of it all the time, and they made some mistakes in the race of it. So at the end of the season, you sit down and you analyze all that, and you see who should have reduced the risk of those mistakes. And, you know, you shouldn't have a blame culture, but somebody's responsible, and you have to make sure that you recognize why it failed, and then you, you have to strengthen it. At the minute, they're, in my book, they're not strengthening it. They're actually diluting it with somebody they think is very good, but they're moving him to a position that he might not be very good at. So they could be, they could be shooting themselves in the foot and um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I think, so what you say. That's, that's a horrendous collision of metaphors, but actually it works. Yes. You can do one after the other, I suppose, but then, you know, the police will be summoned. I, I've, <laughs> I've done it before now, so... <laughs> I quite like the idea of Gary as a team principal. He'd be the only team principal you'd find knee-deep in oil in the garage, probably at 11 o'clock at night, trying to uh, make the gearbox uh, work or something. But the interesting thing is that clearly Ferrari have identified a problem with the leadership of Maurizio Verbene. So do we think that could improve the team's hit rate? Because there were too many mistakes last year from Vettel, but there were some team decisions that went a little bit awry. You could argue that the Ferrari was plenty good enough, at the very, very least, to take the championship down to the wire, if not win it. So obviously that's what Ferrari are hoping for, that the change of regime will 
ensure that the, the technical strength remains, but there's a, a, there is that greater calmness so that points aren't thrown away and maybe Vettel in a more calm atmosphere. We know he's an emotional driver. If you can do that, you can get the best out of Vettel, you maximise your points, Bob's your uncle, you win the championship. Uh, yeah, say, uh, from what I see, I think it's just been diluted a bit. You know, you could easily throw away a couple of tenths of a second in the car, and then suddenly you're scratching to, to, to get up there to be competitive and making all the right decisions. And, you know, we've seen time and time again, like Williams, for example, you know, they, they're one of the fastest in the pit stops. They execute the, the race very, very well, but they finish 14th and 15th, uh, 15 or something. So you need to have the car, first of all, before you can go and challenge to win. And then you have to make sure that you don't get too excited with what's going on on a Sunday afternoon. Um, and you just have to calm everybody down. But, but taking your best technical asset and uh, moving him into a position that, that means he's the, the, the ultimate guy at the top of the ladder, to me, I think that's wrong. Does, does the removal of a blame culture kind of help people to operate better, though? Because um, you, you sort of remove that seed of doubt in the back of, the mar- of your mind that if you make a mistake, then you're going to get, um, the, you know, the, the, the heavens will open and a thunderbolt will descend on you and, and, and you get fired. You know, that, that's what's going to happen to you if your podcast performance doesn't remain at this standard. So Yeah, one of these days is going to happen, isn't it? But, um, you know, if, you, if, if, if you're permanently worried about being fired if the tiniest thing goes wrong, that's, that's a proportion of your possible attention span actually just being wasted on um, something that's a pointless worry and you're not actually focusing 100% on what you need to be doing, whether that's changing a wheel or thinking about what tyre compound to put on at any given time. Yeah, I think you just have to have the right person in the right job. I don't think you can have a blame culture, but somebody has to be responsible. So you have to identify who's responsible for that. And then, as I say, if it's happened too many times, you have to strengthen it or you look at, is there a better person? Is it the right person? Um, I think it's the same in any job, really, to be honest. The, and also, any, any sort of machine, and a team is a machine, is, on, is only as strong as the weakest possible bit. So if, if we were to sort of continue that comparison, um, uh, I remember a few years ago, um, uh, Aston Martin came to Le Mans with uh, a new prototype with a straight-six engine that um, basically didn't work. And so they... They changed one bit, I think, in the, it was a pulley that was breaking or something like that. But then they realized, actually, they'd fixed that, but then the next week his part was going to break. So they ended up just having to pull the cars because they were forever going to be chasing those next sort of weakest little bits. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that's true. You have to identify the, the weak links. People's the same as, as the car. But, you know, it's, the difficult part is now we've got Bonotto at the head of, the, the head of Ferrari. For the last two years, Ferrari have challenged for the championship. Um, they haven't quite succeeded and they haven't quite seen it through. What happens at the end of 2019 if Red Bull step in between them and suddenly Ferrari is now third or fourth in the championship? And it, and it could happen. So, you know, his head's going to roll. And he was very, very good at the job he was done. Because of circumstances, he got put to a position that he might not be good at. He might be excellent at coping with the whole thing, but he might not be good at it as well. And he's the one who's going to carry the can. So they're going to lose a very good asset because they put him in a position that, that he, he shouldn't be. How about Red Bull Honda? Does anyone get excited about a title push? We saw Honda make big steps last year with Toro Rosso. Logical choice for Red Bull to take the engines. It's inevitably going to take them a little bit of time to get to maximum strength. Red Bull remains one of the best race teams in Formula One, operationally very, very strong. Improving Honda, are we going to see more than sniping for the odd win as we've seen in the past few years? You kind of hope so. I'm a huge fan of Honda and 
Gary might take a different view, having having worked with the Mugen machine uh, a little bit. Um, I, I, I love the sort of the engineering swagger and sense of adventure that Honda bring to things. They've done lots of crazy stuff over the years, just basically throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. So a lot of stuff hasn't gone well, like air-cooled engines in road cars because the boss man thought that was the future. Turned out it wasn't. Oval-pistoned motorbike engines, also not the future, but hey, they tried it, they made it work. So generally speaking, they get there. But for them, I think they kind of almost enjoy the journey kind of too much, whereas Formula One is is very competitive. So they, they Honda love the joy of invention. They also like winning as well, but... but Winning is just part part of the joy, and sometimes I think you know, Gary, you, you found that maybe they overestimated their own capacities. But I'm I'm pretty confident that they'll they'll get there in the end. If if it's not this year, then maybe next year. Um, yes, I mean I worked closely with them, and whenever we had the Mugen Honda engine, um, it was built by Honda, um, so it was the same the same facility as such as, as they're using now, and their their, their work their work capacity was second to none. It's just about, initially at that point in time, this was back in um, the late 80s, late 90s, sorry, late 90s, yeah. Um, and the thing is, they needed to not believe in themselves so much. They, needed, you know, they, they build something, and as far as they're concerned, they have the best in the world. And that's 100%, they're 100% behind it. And until you can prove to them that actually it's not quite like that, um, and if they believe that, then... There's nobody can react like them. I mean, I, I was amazed when we just we sort of were able to point to them about their actual performance, and then it suddenly hit home that it was pretty true, and the, the recovery from that was was unbelievable. So I think it's the same thing. I think they they've had their initial sort of uh, grief with with um, McLaren, and they've res- sort of structured themselves now to be much more reactive to the situation. And I think the year with Toro Rosso with a small team. A small team that wasn't kicking them every time they were down was a good thing for them. Now, with Red Bull, it might be a little bit different because Red Bull themselves, the works team, have been very, very good at kicking Renault every time there was a problem. So even back in their championship winning days, the four years they won it in a row with Renault, you know, whenever they had that alternator problem, it was definitely pinpointed as being you know, Renault's problem and nothing to do with Red Bull. Um, and if you speak to Renault, it might be slightly different because there was a, a big compromise in the cooling of the alternator because of Adrian and aerodynamics. But, you know, the relationship hopefully will get off to a good start. I think the Honda engine ended the season in a pretty reasonable condition, probably as good as Renault or pretty close to it, if not. And uh, with Red Bull's might behind it, and they obviously build a very good car, um, and Honda's enthusiasm now they've got with a team that can actually potentially win, um, I think you will see them striding forward because they, they'll believe in it. And Red Bull won't be frightened about telling them where they really are if, if, they're, not, if they're not there. It's, it's the relationship that's really the key, isn't it? And certainly, you know, with the, 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 the way Japanese industry works, you know, the, the Japanese culture is very, very different from the Western culture. And you could argue that maybe the, the relationship's gone particularly well this past year because Franz Tost of Toro Rosso spent time in Japan working with Ralph Schumacher when he was in Super Formula. Um, or, what was it called back then? Super 
Formula, Formula Nippon, yeah, Formula, yeah, Formula Nippon, Nippon back then. So he, he, he knows he knows how you work, how it works. He knows the etiquette of, of of how to work with people and how to get the best out of them. And you didn't see a single piece of snipery at all between the partners last year. Even even when the engine step that was introduced kind of just before the Japanese Grand Prix was looking a little bit shaky and they rode back on it. The the, the team actually they they sort of threw a blanket over it very quickly and didn't want to talk about it either. It was the, there was no sort of, oh, look at them, they've designed a crappy engine, this, uh, this update's not working. It was all, okay, if you've got a problem, just, just take it away, We're not gonna, we'll say nothing about it, we, we'll pretend we never saw it, it it's fine, you know, it's up to you to sort it, it's, it's fine, we trust you. But it's going to be interesting to see how it fits in with the wider power unit battle landscape. Last year, Honda had to show they could be reliable, that they could be competitive compared to Renault. And that's one thing. But Ferrari and Mercedes, power unit-wise, are outstanding. Ferrari's come on very strongly in the past few years. There's two ways of looking at it. One is that this is the sixth season of these power unit packages, and returns are diminishing for those who are at the best uh, at the front. Mercedes, Ferrari. And for Honda, there's still some not necessarily low-hanging fruit, but some medium-hanging fruit they can still reach for. The other is that Mercedes and Ferrari have led the way the past few years. Why should we expect Honda to make a leap to be good enough to compete with them week in, week out, rather than just on the one occasional weekend where the, the track sensitivities happen to suit the performance of the power unit package of Honda? Yeah, I mean, whenever you look at it and the, and the, the difference is that these power units now, including the, the electrical part of it, they're probably developing between, 700 and, between 960 to 980 horsepower. On a, on a good day, and that's a lot of horsepower. Now we've had it sort of said that the um, the Renault is sort of 70 horsepower down in that, so it's a big percentage. But at the end of the day, it's not just about pure horsepower; it's about deployment of that electrical energy, because you can only deploy as 160 horsepower for um, 30 seconds of a lap. So you have a you have to choose where you're going to deploy that that uh, that power and how you can um, uh, recoup it as well. So it's, it's about more than just having pure horsepower and, and using it and, and having a better engine. Also, the cooling of all that stuff, the packaging of all that stuff makes it different. So it's very easy. Whenever Renault were supplying Red Bull with the normally aspirated engines and Red Bull won four championships, they still didn't have the best engine in the pit lane. But what they had was that the package was very drivable um, and it needed less cooling. So they had better aerodynamics on the car because any, any airflow you use to cool the car is no good at making downforce. So it's not just about that number of horsepower. So it all depends on Honda's packaging. Whenever we spoke with James Key at the 2018 pre-season test, James Key was a technical director at Toro Rosso and a, a good friend of mine, he used to work with me at Jordan. He, um, he was very complimentary of, of, of uh, Honda. And he's very complimentary of them because you know, up to then they had been forced into this corner uh, by McLaren's want for packaging. So Honda couldn't release themselves to build the engine and the cooling packages that they needed. So their hands were tied before they started. And the first, for their first time at, you know, with Toro Rosso, they were able to say, we would like to package this like this. And Toro Rosso were able to say, well, that's a good idea. No problem. Let's, yeah, let's do that. So it gave Honda, I think Honda, last year was Honda's first year of being free of the shackles of uh, somebody telling them what to do. And uh, if Red Bull have chosen them for next year, I have to say it must mean that the engine's pretty good because they had direct information through Toro Rosso as to the performance of it. So hopefully 
they will be knocking on the door of, uh, of the Mercedes and Ferrari. I don't think it'll be better because Mercedes and Ferrari are both very, very strong. But rumours that we are hearing is that Mercedes aren't getting as much out of their 2019 packages as, as what they'd hoped for. So maybe if they lose a little bit and Honda gain a little bit, and you never know. It, it kind of depends how much freedom there is in all those little bits of all, all those little developments area and how, how much room there is left for development you know how how much more can they develop the internal combustion engine to get more power from it how can they develop the various electrical bits to either make more to recover more uh, power more efficiently or things like that you know it, it, we, we don't really know how much headroom there is so it's quite a difficult question to answer it is. I mean, again, going back in time a little bit, we were we were using uh, at the moment the Formula One regulations is it's 100 and, it was 105 kilograms of fuel last year, and probably if you looked at it, your average horsepower from the engine and from the electrical system would be somewhere like 850 horsepower for the given lap. So you were doing a Grand Prix of whatever laps, 50 laps or something around Spa um, or around a circuit uh, on. 105 kilograms of fuel developing 850 horsepower. It's not that many years ago that you were using 160 kilograms of fuel developing 700 horsepower for a Grand Prix. So the, the, the technology, the curve has been fantastic through the years. You know, energy is about, is about not wasting it and that's what the, the, the energy recovery system is all about. Just don't throw it away. And um, so I think Formula One has set a very good example of what you can achieve. The reliability of these things for such a complicated package is absolutely fantastic. And I think that will keep, keep gaining momentum. Um, now, the cost of it is huge besides what you could put in a road car, but the philosophy is still the same. And in a road car, obviously, the weight and stuff doesn't matter quite so much. So I think it's doing a good job as far as developing philosophy for road cars, but as far as developing you know, the actual part componentry that you're using at a Grand Prix, it's not for road cars. But I think we'll still see gains, you know, decent gains over, this, over the year. You know, 2019, power-wise, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a 20 horsepower difference from the start of the season to the end of the season. And that, you know, that's a lot. Whenever you're up at that level, that's a lot. Looking outside the big teams, who do we expect to make a big improvement this year? Put you on the spot, Gary. Who, which team, if you had to pick one of those outside the top three, will not necessarily join them, but make a, make a big stride and make people say, wow, that's, that's impressive. Um, well, Renault themselves are saying that they've made, this is the best winter they've ever had, both on the power unit and on the chassis. So, but we, we don't know that. I think the team that I would look at and say that, and I'm not talking about McLaren or, or Williams recovering from a bad position. I'm talking about comp teams that work pretty competitive moving forward. I think, um, I'm not quite sure what it's going to be called, but uh, Force India come Racing Point. Temporarily and currently yeah. Racing Point, but they may change identity again. I think, I think that they could make the biggest step because they've been hampered by budget for quite a few years. And, uh, you know, they've always had the plan, but they've never been able to execute it because budget constraints have stepped in. And they're very, very good at, at going racing. They're, they're a race team, you know. They're a, they still come from the hopefully the old days where they stick their finger out the back of the old, as we call it, the Pratt perch where the engineers sit on the, on the pit wall. They stick their finger out to see if it's raining yet or if the wind's blowing, which direction. They don't phone home from 2,000 miles away. They actually get up and look at it themselves. And they're very, very good at racing. And I have a lot of confidence in Andrew Green and his team of people. They're the guys that I worked with when I was there. Um, and I believe that if they can get that consistency of budget, they don't need the biggest budget in the world because they do work very well with money. 
um, but they need consistency. They need to build a plan. In the past few years, you know, the last couple of years, not, not last year, year, two years before that, they finished fourth in the, in the championship. And that was, a, you know, that, that was a, a sort of difficult plan for them because they had developments that they couldn't put in their car. Um, and now that, that shouldn't happen. So hopefully, I would say they'd be the team that might close the gap to the, to the big three a little bit better. I don't think they'll close it all the way, but I think they'll close the gap to the big three a bit. Now, Stuart, can you stare into your crystal ball? Williams and, McL- uh, Williams and McLaren, yes. Yeah. So it, how strange it is to talk about those two teams in trouble. That's why I was having trouble getting those words out. But those are two teams, lots of fans, high ambitions, horrible season last year. What do you expect from those two teams this year? Which one do you think will have the biggest spring up the order? Do you know, it's so hard to say because both of them at least recognised that they had problems. You know, Paddy Lowe talked about them finding the bottom of the trench and really for both of them it was humiliating wasn't it to have a car that basically had had fundamental problems baked in to the extent that there was nothing that they could actually add to those cars that actually unleash more performance because they were inherently limited so you would kind of think that because McLaren in theory have better facilities and maybe more staff than Williams that they would be better placed to make a leap but at the same time they've got to go over to Cologne and do all their research in the Toyota wind tunnel. So that must have some sort of impact on the way they manage their research programme, whereas Paddy Lowe has now put the aerodynamicists inside the design office so that they can all work together and hopefully create a more, uh, I hate to use the word holistic because it's a sort of a management consultant word, but a kind of a more, a sort of a, a more, complete design can we can we come up with a better idea of coherent coherent Coherent, yeah a A more coherent design that where all the voices come together to create a package that works as one rather than just sort of cherry picking the best bits from other cars as if it's like the maths round from countdown yeah i mean it's difficult because both of them did make errors i mean it's only two years ago since um fernando alonso was saying the mclaren was the best car in the pit lane and in my articles, I was saying, well, that's okay because, you know, they're so slow in the straight. They're running lots of downforce on the car. So it will be good around the corners. Formula One or any, any racing formula is a compromise as to your corner speed and your straight line speed. I mean, and you, could, you could race at Monaco with the wings from Monza. And you could race at Monza with the wings from Monaco. But there would be a difference. You know, you'd go slower in the straight in one of them and you go quicker in the straight in the other one. But you could still race. So it doesn't really matter, but the, the, the whole package now is a set of regulations. You go to different tracks, you set the car up in the best way possible. If McLaren had set their car up in the best way possible for the track, the car might have been a bit more of a handful through the corners, but it might also have been three or four, five kilometers quicker on the street. So they've got to recover from that philosophy at McLaren. Um, and, you know, they're, they're making the right steps, I suppose. But neither of those two teams showed me during the season that they had the step available put in their car that moved them up a little bit. And, th- and that's very important because if you go into the winter still with question marks over, your, over your, yourself as to the decisions you're making with a new car, just from the fact that you think you've sorted it and, but you haven't actually done it, it's, it's a dodgy place to be. You know, confidence is a big thing in design as well as driving. You need the confidence to know that where you're going to is what you should be doing. Yeah. The, the, I think that the 
the key thing for me with McLaren last year was the way that they introduced that sort of credit card swiping slot on each side of the nose. Uh, and then, Which later disappeared. Yeah, and then took it off at the end of the year. So they had, what, five, five or six months with this thing and then took it off at the end, which suggests, I know, I've, I've never designed a race car before, but that, that, that smacks to me of kind of that thing wasn't working and it took them that long to realise. Perhaps they overloaded the credit card. <laughs> well, you know, everything changes, but if you take that slot, just take a typical example, what, what happens with these cars, you, you can see the sort of nose and the narrow nose and the underneath the car is quite a low pressure area. So basically, you have the airflow that goes on top of the nose, goes around the sides of it and gets pulled down into underneath the chassis, the raised chassis section. And then it gets sort of scavenged out from underneath the chassis by the barge boards. And it means the underfloor has got more mass flow at the leading edge of it which allows it, and it's, and it's traveling faster, which allows it to make more downforce. So all those things are important. If they were getting, let's say, with, uh, you know, with the nose at the end they brought out at the beginning of the year, if they were getting a little bit of airflow separation where that airflow was going over the side of the nose, then that credit card slot, or that slap down the nose, may help that separation and reduce it. Positive thing. But then if you cha change the barge boards by a little bit, you might not get that separation. So it's all, you know, the Formula One car is not made up of all these individual bits. It's all made up of a, a package that all works together. So it's not no surprise to me to see someone change in an area where um, you think, well, that's not going to make any difference because something else will have altered the airflow in that in that position. And that you know that's the constant development stuff that you're doing. You're constantly looking at where where you need to do a little bit more, and then that will change it. You start at the front of the car, you work your way to the back of the car, and it, you know because you've got a better front wing. It doesn't mean that the diffuser you've got in the car will work better. You just have to get a better airflow off the back of the front wing, move back through the car using that airflow, get to the diffuser, and then you look at the whole package and you say, yes, this is better. But a lot of things on the way have, have changed. And then you go back to the front of the car and start again, and away you go. So it's just a constant evolution uh, from front to back. I suppose well, you could look at it as a positive thing, can't you, in that, that everything is up for questioning and interrogation and, and eventual deletion. Yeah, it is. I mean, as I say, it's a bit like, uh, I don't know, it's a bit like writing a story, you know, you, you, one of your bits or pieces, or my bits and pieces, you'll, you'll write it, you'll go back through it, you'll add in a few little bits, you'll change it, and then the sort of context of it's changed a bit, so you have to alter it on the way. I'm not very good at writing those things, but you guys do it all day the, long. The sub-editor adds mistakes to it, you know, all those sorts of things. <laughs> no, but it's, 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 it's true, so the whole thing has to change, you can't just change one little bit and hope that the story is better. It's the same racing car. There's not one little bit that makes it. It's the, it's the package all working together. Well, the great thing is there's an awful lot to talk about ahead of the 2019 Formula One season. We could go on for many more hours, but we're not allowed to. So thanks to Gary Anderson and to Stuart Codling. As I say, the Autosport podcast, free to download. Search for it in your podcast supplier of choice. And as I always say at the end of a podcast, thanks for listening and watching. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.